0: Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn.
1: And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, still available at all your finest retailers. Go get your copy, please. A couple of them, as a matter of fact. Yes, now between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known
0: for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out.
1: And on today's episode, well, we're going to head to your feedback. Then to the pub to talk all the latest in the brewery news. we got some information to cover in the brewery about what Denny's been brewing. Uh, in the library, we're going to tell you about a new YouTube channel that you should probably follow. You probably should have been following them anyway, but now they got cool content that you want to see. And then in the lab, we're actually going to talk some of the stuff that's been coming up recently about Saison. And you guys know me and Saison and open fermentation, so stand back. Yeah, I get to take a nap during that section. Before we uh, before we leave, we'll also take you to talking to Matt Bowling of the AHA, talking about the Radagast Award, one of my favorite things that's ever been created by humanity. I might be biased. <laughs> or exaggerating. Maybe. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah. And then of course we'll answer your questions, give you something other than beer and a quick tip, and get you on your way so that you can have a good beery week.
0: But before we do all of that stuff. Please take a listen to these messages from the people who make this show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support.
1: Welcome back, and thank you. And once again, remember, every time you talk to one of our sponsors, tell them that you heard about them here on the show. Make sure they know they're spending their money foolishly. I mean, wisely. (laughs) And now, it's time for your
0: feedback. Feedback. Oh, man. That's so impressive when you do that. Yeah, it it tickles the throat a little, but I enjoy
1: it. (laughs) Now, we had a couple pieces of feedback, including some uh, reoccurring segments on our science versus experience and our no-chill brewing, so uh, let's dig right into it. And our first one comes from Dan Roth on science versus experience, and Dan is an honest-to-God professor. And he said, in episode 110, you discussed science versus experience. I think you have presented this as a false dichotomy. The real issue is when people misrepresent what science says it does. Science generally doesn't give you something absolute. Most studies should be interpreted as under conditions X and Y, you can expect the result Z will happen with some probability. From what I've seen, this is where most homebrewers misrepresent what the science is telling us. Additionally, Drew made an excellent point.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It happens once in a while, man. Even a blind squirrel can find a nut once in a while.
1: (laughs) Drew made an excellent point. I'm repeating that. That scientific studies are done in a specific context with certain necessary constraints. We run into problems when people try to apply the scientific results to situations that the results don't entirely apply to. And they expect their experience to 100% agree with the science. Cheers. And Dan's right. Science is very narrow in terms of what it's asking and what it's trying to answer. And there are no great guarantees. And the, even if you get the result that you thought you were going to get... There's no guarantee that you're going to get the next time that you do it.
0: Man, I I so, so agree with this. Uh, You know, just today we had a a comment on one of our uh, links that we posted uh, where someone said, I'm really glad you guys do the science so we don't have to. And it's like, no, people, that's not the way it's supposed to work. What we're coming up with, what brewlosophy comes up with, what any homebrew experimenter comes up with, are data points uh, not a conclusion and we rely on you guys to test out those data points and do it the same way and see what your conclusions are because otherwise we can't reach any kind of conclusion nope. uh, and you oh, know and that's that's for that's for us doing citizen science and it's even more important in the world of real science
1: yeah no, all we can do is give you pointers and hopefully those pointers add up to something over time in enough instances um, and also uh, to Dan's experience as a as a scientist and you know my experience as an engineer, I I, I mean no big surprise. Whenever people are trying to uh, simplify what something scientific is saying, you know, for the mass audience or whatever somebody's trying to get you to click on a website. Uh, Yeah, they're going to take the most dramatic reading that they can on a result from a scientific paper, which is the reason why you get all these news stories. They're like, scientists have proved that eating kale will allow you to live to 150.
0: Yeah, right. Or the secret to living to be 105 is to drink a bottle of scotch every day. It's like, no, no, this guy got lucky. It,
1: well, hey, I mean, I'm willing to take that advice. So, our next piece of feedback comes actually on our YouTube channel. Yes, we, have, don't forget, we do have a YouTube channel. We don't post a lot of content there, but, uh, this is exactly what that comment's about, from Jimmy Swenson, and he commented on YouTube, he said, I think you guys should push your YouTube channel a little bit more. Maybe upload like six brew sessions per year, three Denny, three Drew, and then maybe upload a video where you guys do all of those awesome interviews at homebrew convention and similar events that being said i understand that you guys are already working hard to produce your excellent podcast but uh, uh, jimmy i agree with you on all fronts i would love to do some more youtube content um it does take more time and right now time is not something that denny and i have a lot of if this were my full time job i would definitely be there but i think we can make some room to do some fun stuff i just we have to do some logistics planning
0: let me and let me just tell you jimmy that you would be bored out of your mind watching one of my brew sessions <laughs> It's just like, it's it's no big deal. Uh, and the other thing is that we don't post a lot of stuff on YouTube because who the heck wants to look at us?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and our next piece of feedback on No Chill this time uh, comes from Sheldon Woods who said, I accidentally started No Chill Brewing over 10 years ago. Up here in Quebec, it can get cold in the winter. Negative 20 Fahrenheit is not unusual. Yeah, that's a little cold. So, trying to run a chiller is almost impossible because hoses and things freeze. In the winter, I would chill by putting my kettle in a big Rubbermaid container filled with water and snow and ice. You know, that's a nice, cheap, easy way of doing it. Yeah. No, if you put the kettle in a snowbank, it will take forever to chill, even at negative 20. Snow is a fantastic insulator. Just look at your igloos, folks. That's why they make them. Um, So, I would chill my beer with snow slash water until one time something came up. I left the kettle out overnight. In the morning, the beer was nice and cool. Ever since that mistake, that's the way I do things now. At the time, I'd never really heard the term no-chill. I called it ambient chilling because that's what it really is. Anyway, that is the background. This is the main point I want to let you know. In the morning, the wort is around 40 degrees Fahrenheit. It is crystal clear with beautiful clouds of cold break in it. Maybe rapid chilling makes cold break come easier, but chilling down to those temperatures gives me that cold break, and I never have any issues of chill haze either.
0: Wow. Well. You know, and I guess we can now uh, have a discussion about if that's really no chill when he's leaving it someplace cold. Well, I mean,
1: I guess I mean his term ambient chilling is probably more accurate there. But yeah, also- I
0: I, th- I think that that's really true. Uh, I mean, and that you know, when you have something that is totally as non-defined as no chill, it can be about anything you want it to be. So uh, he's not actively chilling the wort in any fashion, I, maybe yeah. that's the the description we should use for no chill.
1: And uh, well, and I, and I've had friends of mine here because of course Southern California does not get to negative <laughs> 20. God help us if it did, the entire city that's would weird. break. Um, but I do have people like during the winter, they'll go and chuck their brew kettle into their swimming pool because what else are you going to do with a swimming pool in, in winter in Southern California? Right. Uh, so that's a pretty good use there as well. But yeah, it, there are lots of ways that you can do this chilling thing. The main thing is basically make sure that your wort stays closed up. And then our and then our final piece of feedback is actually something other than beer feedback, which is highly unusual. Uh and it's something that Denny and I were just talking about before the recording. Uh Gord Mitchell from Vancouver, British Columbia says I was listening to the show today on my way to work in Vancouver. It was the episode where your something other was on the Monty Don gardening shows and how much better the Brits do reality TV than we do in North America. I'll agree to that with a certain caveat. The second you started talking about it, I knew just the show you were thinking of. My wife and I fell in love with that series a couple years ago when we were planning a small garden project. Funny how that works. There's another British series called Grand Designs that is similar to Big Dream's Small Spaces, but focused on crazy people building their own homes, or at least managing the projects themselves. It has all the same characteristics you lauded about Big Dreams. It's about people doing something for themselves, and the drama that comes from the challenges associated with that. Not anything artificial cooked up by the show producers. It is very satisfying. And Grand Designs is available here in the U.S. via Netflix, at least two seasons worth. So you can go and find that on Netflix, uh, Grand
0: Designs, more soothing entertainment. And you know what? I've been watching that show for the last year. (laughs) <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, it, it, it's very interesting. Uh, the people don't actually do most of the labor themselves as they do on Big Dreams. Uh, but there's some really interesting things. Uh, there's some... Uh, Really genuinely stunning homes that come out of it. Uh, I've seen one genuinely stunning failure when a guy tried to turn a castle into a place to live and uh, went broke and never actually got the job finished. But it's a it's a good show, and it has uh, some of that, that mellow vibe that those uh, British shows have. So definitely, if you like the other things we've talked about, check out Grand Designs.
1: There we go. Well, all this talk about grand designs and gardening and no-chill has made me thirsty. You're always thirsty. This is true.
0: (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a quick break here and head over to the pub where we're going to be talking about the beer life. So please stick around. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Choose your own brew venture. Join for one year and receive a complimentary brewing book to match your beer journey. Select from more than 60 books, including our favorite, Simple Home Brewing, Great Beer, Less Work, More Fun, written by Denny and Drew. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to join the American Homebrewers Association and treat your shelf to a new brewing book. Get offer details at homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. This spring, Why Yeast is featuring two yeast strains that have revolutionized craft brewing, 1056 American Ale and 1318 London Ale 3. These legendary strains have shaped many beers over the decades, and the king of craft beer itself, the IPA. From iconic American IPAs to New England styles, these Brewmasters favorites are available year-round in the Activator Smack Pack system for your next brew day. Our featured strains are complemented with a limited release of 1217 PC West Coast IPA, a yeast with balanced neutral character and a good flocculation, and 2575 PC Kolsch 2 for brewing a German IPA or keeping it traditional with a rich profile. And soft malt finish for Kolsch. Available now through June. Head over to lab.com for our latest brewing advice and more info on this spring's legacy curation. Let's get brewing. back, everybody. We're sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, and we are drinking a couple beers. And as usual, Drew's going to go first. And because
1: it's flagship February, I'm having two beers. That's right, I'm cheating. I'm having two beers, but they're related at least. And the flagship I'm having is Russian Rivers Plenty of the Elder, which now that they have their new brewery up available in uh, Windsor, is becoming more available. Yeah, you know, it always used to be one of those beers where you had to kind of know where to go find it and where to find it. And I knew where to find it. So I'm having Pliny the Elder, which I still think is a damn near perfect beer. Uh, and I know some people out there will say, oh, well, you know, I like Blind Pig better, which is also a really great beer. And some days I prefer that. But in terms of the whole double IPA thing and how that all started, Plenty of the Elder to me is just fantastic. Maybe a little overhyped, but still fantastic.
0: It's been so long since I've had one that I can't remember anything other than I really enjoyed it. I guess I'm going to have to see if their distribution extends up here now.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about it is it's got a clean malt character to it. It actually has some body to it, but not a noxious amount. But it's also not like the modern take where it's all Pilsner malt and nothing else, right? You know, the body's just nothing. And right. so because of that, it also has this really good base for a lot of hops. And again, it's not the, I'm going to strip all of the enamel off your teeth level of hopping that we've gone to with some of our IPAs. It is a very hoppy, but very, very drinkable beer that lets you know you're having a beer, and boy, is this full of hops. Um, now, so,
0: do I remember correctly that they use a pretty fair amount of hop extract in that beer?
1: They do. So uh, for the bittering, the bittering charge is all hop extract and talking about Vinny was one of the first ones in the craft brewer industry to kind of stand up and go, yeah, hey, I use hop extract in this beer, because the amount of loss that you'd have to the hop pellets, or just the hop matter, would have been blindingly staggering amounts. And so he switched to extract to both get less green material in the kettle for tannic purposes, but also less green material for absorption purposes. Which then turns around and brings us to the other beer, I don't quite have it in front of me right now, but I am tomorrow after we're done recording this. And that's Plenty of the Younger. And Plenty of the Younger is the triple IPA that they do once per year. And it only gets out to, you know, certain locales for during certain periods of time. And, you know, they had their Plenty of the Younger week in uh, Russian Rivers brewing, uh, brewery. They had lines of people waiting to get this beer. And so I'm going tomorrow to one of my favorite places in the universe. And Denny, you, you liked it a lot too when you were there, the stuff sandwich. And I'm going to have my pint applying the younger for the year.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, it was, it was great. Um, I wish I could get it more often. I've had a chance to get it a couple more times, but it's one of those things where you had to stand in line and I just don't have the patience to do that. Well, that's why you know people.
1: Um, and then uh, the thing I've heard about this year's version is it's much drier. And, you know, it actually does a better job of expressing the Hop character, so I'm going to go have some tomorrow, and if I'm ahead of the curve in terms of my thinking, you guys might even hear a review of it. Maybe. We'll see. Mm-hmm. And you start, what are you drinking?
0: Well, I'm saluting flagship February also with one of my absolute favorite beers in the world, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Uh, I can't think of a more flagship beer out there. Uh, it's wonderful. It has body. It has that uh, caramel malt taste, which some people hate and I just absolutely adore, because it provides a perfect canvas for the the nice fruity bitterness of that beer. Uh to my way of thinking, this is a, a darn near perfect beer. It's uh, a classic example of the American Pale Ale, even though it got dissed at GABF for not being hoppy enough. <laughs> um, no man, it's like it defines a style. How can you say it's not the style?
1: I, I, I mean, that's a little bit like somebody saying Anchor Steam isn't, you know, quite like a California Common.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly, you know. But at any rate, if you're into uh, American Pale Ales, uh, I invite you to go revisit this beer during Flagship February and uh, see where it all got started.
1: Sounds good to me. And you can also try the 40th anniversary thing that they put out as well. I think you talked about that last time.
0: Yeah, well, and that's that's what brought this to mind was I liked the uh, the 40th anniversary so much I decided okay let's go back and revisit the pale ale and uh, I think maybe I like this even better than the 40th. The uh, pale ale is just it's a good damn drink. It's perfect. Beer. Yeah, it's perfect.
1: Now speaking of perfect, well, not really.
0: <laughs> Boy, now there's a segue. <laughs>
1: It is that time of year when it is time for the AHA Governing Committee elections. Uh, they have just now opened up, and the elections will be open for a few weeks. And the whole point is, I think this year there's five representatives up for election? Correct. So the AHA Governing Committee, which I've sat on in the past, which Denny is a member of right now, uh, they are your representatives to the AHA, homebrewers around the, the nation, who help guide what the AHA is doing, the different programs the AHA does, the different information the AHA puts out there. Yeah, and they, and we help run programs like the Radagast, which you'll hear about later. And, well, we've got a whole slate of candidates for those five slots. So if you are an AHA member, I encourage you to go to the AHA website, which is homebrewersassociation.org. And click on the governing committee link. There should probably be a news story on the front page. And go read the candidate statements and go elect some people to help us decide what's gonna happen with the HA. And when I say us, It'll be me. I'm just a member.
0: Yeah, and uh, beginning Monday, there will be a new section on the AHA forum where all of the candidates will be available for you to ask them questions about what their plans are if they get on the Governing Committee. Uh, It should be really interesting. You can have a little back-and-forth dialogue with them and hear directly from them about why they need to be on the Governing Committee.
1: Right, and to clarify, that's... That will be up by the time listeners hear this episode.
0: Yeah, go to the uh, Governing Committee section of the AHA Forum, and you'll be able to ask questions of all the candidates there. There you go. And, you know, some of them
1: are old and dusty, and this story also is old and dusty, in a way. (laughs) Yeah. So, Canteon is, to my mind, the exemplar of Lambic. They are one of the traditional defenders of... What it means to be a Lambic producer uh, over there in Brussels, and I think they're the last brewery, uh, Lambic brewery, actually still located in Brussels. And they have a number of projects out there. Now, for whatever reason, it's become damn near impossible to find Cantillon here in L.A., I think pretty much everywhere. It's a tiny little brewery, and now they're now their beer's selling everywhere, which is great. It sells out, yay! I'm glad that means more of it can be done in the future. But I, I'm going to have problems finding it unless somehow I get over to Brussels, and there's a good reason to get over to Brussels now. They just announced on Facebook that they have a a series of lambics that they've done for a while, uh, Saint Lamb Venice, Venice, which is a lambic and wine mixture, and they did. A batch 25 years ago with a producer down in Bordeaux. And they blended in Merlot to the, into the, into the Lambic and aged it in barrels at the winery. And they were going to have a big party to come and, you know, bottle everything and, and then take the beers back to Brussels. Well, for various reasons, the Van Roy's were unable to make it to the bottling party. And so the beer never left the winery until now because they discovered that there were 500 bottles of this beer sitting in the winery it has now been taken up to Brussels and it's going to be available for sale at the brewery during their uh, special March event so if you're anywhere near near Brussels you might want to get there oh sorry not March, uh, May 1st so it will be available for sale May 1st at the brewery the brewery is a wonderful thing to visit anyway um, sort of a little bit of both working brewery and history museum and Oh, my God, how that machinery not killed anybody? And it's just going to be a a really special treat if you can manage to get your hands on that for either tasting or for taking away.
0: I love it when things get lost and found. <laughs> yeah, man. That sounds like just a really extraordinary beer, and it'll be interesting to see how it's kept for 20 years.
1: 25. The good thing is that the Lambics do do pretty well over time. Um our next story is actually back here in the U.S., where a Buffalo-based brewery, uh, 42 North, has uh, decided that they're offering a, a well, kind of an interesting program. So, if you've been buying beer cans recently, any craft beer cans from your local brewery, the odds are pretty good that they've come packed with what are called pack tech uh, canning carriers. And those are the plastic snap tops that fit over the top of the cans and make your individual cans into like a four pack or a six pack, right? And so 42 North has decided that these things are reusable, they're recyclable, but they're really reusable. And so they're not the first brewery I've heard of doing this, but they're the first ones that are they're the ones I've heard most recently about doing this. If you show up to the brewery with 10 PackTech containers or 10 PackTech carriers, you get a free pint of beer at the brewery. Because you're giving them back and they can, they can use those. So I've seen some other breweries saying, "Hey, if you have them in specific colors, because those specific colors are what they use, they'll also give you something." But this is like, you know, kind of a nice, clean thing. And of course, the second that this guy announced, everybody's like, "But wait, I thought you weren't allowed to give away free beer."
0: <laughs> yeah, really. Man, I think that that's really a, a great move, though. I mean, I I highly support them. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's these things are reusable. I have a stack of them out in my brewery, and I just tend to use them whenever I'm making cans. I think I sent you some cans in them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, So, th- they're very handy, uh, but if you don't have a canner, they're not going to be that handy for you, so at least get them back to somebody who can use them. And in this particular case, 42 North will reward you for that.
0: Yeah, man, I- I'm all for any kind of recycling whatsoever, and I think that that's a great thing, and thanks, 42 North.
1: All right, and the last story comes from Montana.
0: And, Denny, you want to take this? Yeah. um, The town of Haver, Montana, has turned to a brewery to solve a problem it had with its uh, wastewater treatment. Basically, they had a problem where there were too many nutrients in the water, specifically phosphorus. And uh, bacteria will help reduce that, but they were just not getting healthy enough bacteria. So they started picking up spent grain from Triple Dog Brewing and uh, dumping several buckets of the grain into their wastewater treatment pools to encourage bacterial growth and it just did a wonderful job for them at removing nitrogen and phosphorus from the wastewater um so you know you got to you got to give them both credit uh, the wastewater treatment guys for even thinking of the solution and uh, the brewery for going along with them the brewery had been taking their uh spent grain and uh, taking it to a compost site in town and this is a whole heck of a lot more useful than that so good on all of you guys for being creative like that and uh, hopefully other towns that have similar problems will get hip to it and try the same thing
1: yeah and so i mean they were talking about the fact that so they have to clean up 1.5 million gallons of water per day and that with some of the, you know, more stricter standards that were coming online for, you know, how clean water needed to be. They were going to have to spend millions of dollars in order to be able to get, you know, everything in line with what it was before they actually went and put the water into the river system. Right? And so the whole idea was that you, you don't want to put nutrient rich, phosphate rich water back into the, into the streams because that's how you get algae blooms.
0: Right. right. That's,
1: how, that's how you destroy the, the, the quality of the water. That's how you, you know, make it too uh, dead for fish to live in even and so yeah they were expecting to have to spend like you know a couple million dollars to do that instead they figured out a couple buckets of grain does the trick because the bacteria that's in there and the nutrients that are in there allow everything to kind of stand up and get to work and clean itself up
0: right and it it doesn't even take a whole lot Uh, 16 gallons of spent barley is all it takes uh, per batch. And it saves them millions of dollars on on an upgrade for their water treatment plant and 16000 bucks annually for a a chemical treatment. So it's a great thing. It's not going to get rid of all the spent grain. There will still be plenty left to compost. But it is an economical and creative solution, and I really salute these guys.
1: Yeah, so kind of cool. Not bad for a couple buckets of grain per day. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, really, exactly. Yeah, And they actually even, the town even won an award from the EPA for uh, sort of the out-of-the-box thinking there. So
0: that was pretty cool. Extremely cool, extremely cool. Out-of-the-box thinking is what we need to solve those kinds of issues.
1: Exactly, and now, speaking of out-of-the-box, it's time for us to go get a book.
0: <laughs> okay, we're going to take a book out-of-the-box?
1: Don't think about it too hard, man.
0: Yeah, I know, I know, man. I, I really shouldn't. It just hurts my head. Okay. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to be over in the library talking about some videos that the Brewers Association has put out. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch two-in-one distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug and play. The AirStill Pro column cools itself with a built in high powered fan. The Still Spirits AirStill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the AirStill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Welcome to the library, everyone. We are sitting here surrounded by books and the musty smell of, well, I thought it was books, but maybe it's Drew. We're going to be talking today about some videos about basic lab techniques that the Brewers Association has put on their YouTube channel, and Drew found them.
1: Yeah, I don't know. They're not listed publicly, but somehow they're there. And, you know, so the Brewers Association, remember, is the professional brewer's wing of, you know, what we think of as the HA. Really, the HA is the subpart of the B.A., but the Brewers Associations out there representing all the independent craft breweries in America. And one of their big things is about trying to teach professional brewers how to improve the quality of their beer, how to improve the stability of their beer, you know, how to get the better science behind their beer as well. And so what they have on their YouTube channel, which is just uh, Brewers Association. So the videos are actually produced in joint a joint effort between the American Society of Brewers and Chemists and Brewers Association. And, you know, they have various actual brewery chemists or brewery chemistry students from around the, you know, the the world so far, or from around Colorado so far, doing videos on how to properly measure and report pH. And then also the other one is my favorite is the ASBC's Hot Steep Malt Sensory Evaluation Method, which I made a video on how to do it at home. And it's the same technique, but it's kind of nice to see it done, you know, by the actual rules of what the process is. So my hope is going to be that this is going to be a growing channel. They are certainly professionally produced, and they're well done. So the, let's pray and hope that they'll be out there with more of these, and we'll make sure to include a link to them, because if nothing else, you can learn a lot quickly about the pH and a lot about how to evaluate your malts.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, man, it's uh, it's very interesting. I, I'm looking forward to see if they put more of them up there. Yep, so it's all good. Go find your data, people. (laughs) Yeah, check it out. Uh, It's interesting, even if you may not even be into that stuff. At least it's cool to see how it works.
1: Yeah, and if you go to our YouTube channel, uh, which is Experimental Brewing, you'll also be able to see our take on the hot steep uh, malt analysis method. Uh, I play around with more gadgets in it because, of course, I'm trying to do more at the same time than than they were. Uh, Mine involves mason jars and sous vide equipment.
0: Yeah, well, you know what?
1: Because you like to go big. Exactly. And now, speaking of going big, it's time to head to the brewery.
0: Okay. We're going to be heading over to the brewery and talking about uh, some things Drew has discovered about Maris Otter Malt in response to uh, an email we got. And I'm going to be talking about what I brewed yesterday, which I don't get to do often enough. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. Welcome to the brewery. We got the burners going. We got all the gleaming stainless steel all around us here. And we're going to be starting off with malt. So, Drew, uh, tell us what you found out about Maris Otter.
1: Okay, well, it's not actually directly about Maris Otter. This is in response to the question that we've had ongoing for a long time. You guys will remember that we had a listener right in saying that, uh, wondering about the use of Maris Otter in American beers. And specifically about a piney type note that he, that he got from Marisar. They got consistently. And that was a little while ago and it's been a while trying to find more information to give other than huh? And I'm still kind of at the huh stage. Uh, even with the people I've been asking questions of and papers I've been reading. Cause here's the problem. Pine is most often associated with, you know, like a terpene compound. So, you know, like think turpentine right, uh, that sort of thing. And these terpenes are, you know, they're structures with that sort of aroma that we, that we ascribe to sharp, to medicinal, to, you know, uh, the solventy, uh, or also to the compounds that we get out of our hops. So one of the problems is if you tell me about something related to a terpene-esque character in a beer, my brain is always going to run to hops, and it turns out most people's brains do. If you go and you look at all the brewing papers that are out there, Oh man, so many of them, if you, if you search on the word terpene, better than 99% of them are all about hops. Because that's the most common source of terpenes in beer. So this took a while to find, and I still only have one link I've managed to find in all my trolling. And it wasn't about Maris Otter. It was actually about Full Pint. So a different, different barley variety, which I believe Full Pint is what Seth's been using at Mechagrade, right?
0: Uh, yeah, Full Pint is what he's been using, although he's got the, the new one called White Buffalo, but I believe that that's a Full Pint cross. Right,
1: and so Full Pint, I found one paper that talked about it as an incidental note, that Full Pint has the, uh, the monoterpenes that can end up smelling like pine. This is the only evidence I've been able to find so far about uh, pine in a malt. So I have more research to do. And if anybody out there, particularly anybody who has access to, you know, sort of all the papers in the Brewing Chemistry Society or the NBAA or anything like that, if anybody else has read something about malt and pine, let me know. Because so far, this is the only inkling I've been able to find. It was a thesis paper from one of the brewing schools. Uh, where the researcher in question talked about finding a monoterpene in full pint. Nothing about Maris Otter, but it was enough to kind of make me go, huh, because that's very strange.
0: And it makes me wonder, too, because I've used a lot of uh, full pint via Mechagrade and actually a couple other maltsters around here use it. I don't think I've ever gotten anything even close to that. So, yeah, maybe one of those things that's theoretical and you don't really sense it. Uh, but I don't know, man.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely interesting, It's and it's just out there enough on the edge that it's really hard to find any information about. So I'll keep digging, because now my brain is a bit baffled. <laughs> <And> <laughs> my I brain having, is always baffled. Well, I know, but you're old, and I hate having baffled brain. I'm going to get okay. there soon enough.
0: I was going to say, uh, get, get used to it, man. Yeah, now, let's
1: talk from terpenes in malt to alts.
0: From malt to alt, I decided it was time to whip out another batch of my wee shroomy. I have uh, five pounds of chanterelles stuck frozen in my freezer, vacuum sealed, due to a good neighbor. And I told him probably two years ago I was going to make the beer and split it with him. And I decided, by God, it's time to do that. So I've got my golden promise waiting to go. Well,
1: hold on. So uh, Just so the people who don't obsessively follow what you do or work with you all the time. Your Wee Shroomy is what sort of beer?
0: Uh, The Wee Shroomy is a uh, Wee Heavy that is made uh, with chanterelle mushrooms. It uh, goes into secondary with uh, chanterelle mushrooms and sits there on them, and the apricot-y flavor of the chanterelles just really, really complements that nice malty uh, Wee Heavy. So anyway, as much as I love my uh, SNS shaken not stirred starter method, it just really isn't appropriate for a 1090 beer. So I decided that I would brew another beer and uh, use the slurry from that beer to make the wee shroomy. I'd uh, I just, uh Y-East 1728, their Scotch Ale Yeast, that's what I use for the Wee Shroomy. I figured, okay, this stuff ferments cold, it's fairly clean, this should work okay for an alt beer. Uh, I have kind of a an Americanized alt recipe known as Milo's Alt. It's out there all over the internet if any of you want to check it out, but basically it's eight or nine pounds of Munich and three pounds of Pills Malt. Uh, this time around I went with, uh, Six pounds of Munich, uh, the Munich being Mechagrade's Metolius malt, and because that was all that was in the bag, I had to <laughs> make up the rest of it with uh, with pale malt, and I had the end of a bag of Great Western's Ida Pills. So it ended up being six pounds of Metolius and six pounds of Ida Pills, uh, maybe like a tablespoon or two of cinnamar just for color, some Mount Hood hops, Milo's alt was named after uh, my dear departed cat Milo and so I decided to name this one after another cat who's still around my my big orange cat Rudy so this became Rudy's alt and uh, it's in the fermenter right now I pitched it at 59 Fahrenheit it is uh, down to 55 now fermentation has taken off Uh, It was less than 24 hours. I don't know exactly how much less because it happened during the night when I was asleep. Probably in a week or so, I will rack that beer over to a keg and start putting it into the freezer to age. It's about a 10.55 beer. And brew the wee shroomy and get that going in the fermenter on the yeast cake. And when that sucker's done, I will transfer that to a secondary with the five pounds of chanterelles. And let it sit for a week or so there until it's ready to go and be kegged. It's unusual. I actually plan far enough ahead to have like another batch in mind, but in this case, that was the whole idea.
1: Going to do demand and wait for my pint of uh, wee shroomy and Oh, of course, uh, of course, you you will get both. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I like that idea. I've still got to brew the golden strong. I have the yeast ready for it, and just have to do the transfer and then. Uh, go and make some beer great uh, man yeah. we we can trade there you go i like it so i i did also have to laugh that you said that it had been long enough since you brewed that you've forgotten how good something smells
0: yeah man it's like you know i have been thinking for the last month or so it's like oh man i can get a brew in this week and then something comes up and i haven't and uh, i was mashing in yesterday in my cooler that's what i was using and this wonderful aroma came up at me. And, you know, these are two really good malts. Uh, and by the way, I didn't get any piney scents off of the uh, Metolius. Um, but, you know, I was, I was mashing in, smelling these malts going into the hot water. and going, oh, I have been missing this aroma.
1: There you go. I think that's pretty good. And now it's time for us to go talk some science.
0: Yeah, man, uh, this is going to get deep here, folks, so <laughs> hang on. But we're going to revisit uh, the old cezanne uh experiment with some new data that's come up recently that may have uh, some explanations about why open fermentation seems to avoid that. So we're going to listen to some messages from our sponsors here, and when we come back, we're going to be getting technical. The ultimate all-in-one electric homebrewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in homebrewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves wort flow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3,300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. Welcome to the lab. We're about to get techie here and talk about some Cezanne yeast data that has recently come to light. Bzz, bzz. There he goes. He's being the Jacob's Ladder again. You denied me my
1: opportunity. I had to take it. So, <laughs> we had a couple of listeners write in recently about Cezanne. Uh, and get a lot of questions about Cezanne over time. You know, go figure. And one of our listeners, uh, John Horn, said... Uh, on a somewhat recent episode of the Master Brewers of the Americas podcast, they talked about why certain saison yeast perform better with an open fermentation. If I remember correctly, it has more to do with oxygen demand of the yeast than CO2 toxicity. For the life of me, I cannot seem to find which episode it was that they talked about, it, but I got pretty excited because it was some hardish science backing what what Drew has been promoting for a while now. And, John, I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but I think it's probably... Episode 152 of the Masters Brewers Association's podcast, because it is about evaluation to discover whether or not something is uh, diastatic is used, aka okay, it has the uh, STA1 gene expression. And there's a reason for that, because a while back, and I've been trying to do some more research on this before we brought it up, and now it's all coming to a head. So thank you, Leandro, uh, for writing in, because Leandro wrote in, uh, I think, like two months ago, to talk about Milk the Funk, uh, having a podcast on as well. And they were talking about diastaticus, which is the reason why I think it was that that one that Master Brewers was talking about. And, again, it was talking about diastaticus, which, again, is, if you don't remember, diastaticus strains of yeast are saccharomyces strains that can also produce a glucoamylase that allows (laughs) – what does that word mean? Glucoamylase is a cold-acting enzyme. It will basically break down starches over time and make them into fermentable sugars. So, if you remember, there was some controversy that happened because White Labs was being sued by Left Hand Brewing Company because White Labs hadn't marked some of the strains as diastaticus. At this point in time, almost everybody in the brewing industry went, diastaticus what? And Including the yeast companies. And it came out that, no, there are a whole series of yeast strains out there. A lot of these that have reputations for being real aggressive fermenters that turn beers really dry. Turns out, they are probably uh, Saccharomyces cervacea var diastaticus. And what people have discovered in order to be able to test for is there is a particular gene, STA1, um, that effectively produces, it, it triggers the production of this glucoamylase, as I understand it. And it, the glucoamylase allows it to break down dextrins, and it's the, the expression of this gene that that causes this to happen. And so what they talked about on Milk the Funk and what they talked about in the Master Brewers Association is that the mal- malto trios, which is one of the longer chain sugars um, that we don't normally see yeast eating, is what gets heavily utilized in these STA uh, one yeast. And it's it's basically it's a, a new pathway that can happen. But what they found, and this is from Christopher Krogeris and a paper that was on the subject that about genetics of SDA1 and its regulation, there is a connection to the stallout that we've always talked about. Now remember with the stallout is the DuPont strains in particular, so the White Lab 565, the YU 3724, all these sort of non French Saison strains, or the the baseline non French Saison strains, are more than likely some variant of DuPont. They have had a sensitivity to stalling, which means that they will start off like gangbusters. You'll put them in a beer that's like 1050, 1060. They will ferment like mad for like three days, get down to somewhere in about the 1030s, and then stall out. They'll stop fermenting, and they'll hang out there for two or three weeks, and then suddenly pick up again and keep going. And it's frustrating people to the point where a lot of people have defaulted to using French saison strains, which are fine, but they're kind of boring. Or they'll use the Brauzy Blauzy strain, uh, the 3726 farmhouse from White Yeast, which is a great yeast, but it's not quite still a classic Dupont saison. We've speculated for a while as to cause for that stall. You know, is it something dealing with sugar levels? Is it something dealing with rising, rising CO2? Is it something dealing with back pressure? Right? You know, is the airlock enough to do it? And just because of what I learned, I figured that open fermentation was probably going to be a helpful thing. And that's what the experiment that we did a couple of years ago showed. You guys will remember that we had, I think it was 15 testers doing this. Uh, and of the 15 testers, 14 saw a better performance with their open fermentation than they did with their closed fermentation, right? That was a real simple test. Two batches of wort, same pitch of yeast. One with an airlock, one with a piece of
0: foil on top. And, you know, we got some of the most definitive results we've ever had for an experiment with that one.
1: Yeah, and again, it was 14 out of 15 testers saw that the batch with just the foil on top, a.k.a. the open fermentation batch, proceeded straight to fermentation finish without having the dreaded stall, where the airlock batch stalled, right? Of course, the only one of the testers who didn't see that was Marshall Schott of Brewlosophy, <laughs> yeah we gave him a lot of crap about that well but as it turns out that one of the things that was different was marshall was pulling the airlock on the on the fermenter all the time to try and track the gravity change so some people speculated that could have been enough of a difference and now this looks like this may actually be a thing because leandro went on to say so the link to the stallout, as our experiments had shown you know open fermentation avoids the stallouts. And the interesting bit to him was that they also found that oxygen promotes the expression of the STA1 gene, a.k.a. more oxygen, more STA1 expression, which means more glucoamylase. A lack of oxygen, like a completely closed fermenter, depresses the expression of STA1, and so therefore maltotriose and dextrin don't get consumed by the diastatic yeast in the same way, which then slows down the fermentation. Now I'm still not entirely certain why the you you then see the pickup later, but this is the theory about the stall out, and to this point, Brulosophy, as we're recording this, had just released an experiment that is very much testing this, where one of the uh, one of their testers went through and actually tried this, right? Yeah, he he had. Uh... Yeah, it was it was Matt Delvecchio, and he he went and he did exactly this experiment where it was like. Okay, you know, if we do this open and closed, do we see a difference? And now, when Brewmaster does this, to do everything with a triangle test at the end for taste, right? Because of the theory being, if it doesn't impact the taste, then what do you care? In this particular case, I'm more concerned about the the performance difference, right? Because that's what actually matters to me. And they did see that the um that the beer that was being done closed is supposed to open had basically was moving or sorry the beer that was closed was stalling it was moving more slowly and it had a uh, had a higher finishing gravity initially and then the and even when they got down to the end the closed fermentation was still 3 points higher than the open fermentation right so that was interesting to me and that actually shows to me that there is a process difference there there is something that that's changed and then what they also, because they like to do everything by taste, they went and they did a triangle test with 21 people. They needed 11 people to to cross over the appropriate p-value for significance. And they had 12 that did actually correctly identify a difference. And uh, what Matt said was that the difference that he perceived was a stronger banana, a stronger fruitier aroma in the open fermented beer, as opposed to the one with the uh, closed vessel. And that both of them were kind of pepper and clovey, but there was just a stronger fruity note in the, in the open fermentation, which, I mean, is not hugely surprising to me. They were using the uh, Imperial Rustic strain, strain. Correct. Which I believe, I want to say that's the Blougies. I want to say that's the equivalent to the to White use uh, Farmhouse.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I do have to say that at least from what I want to know, the way the beers taste is kind of immaterial because, you know, if you're testing fermentation then i would just be looking at numbers but that's what they did and it's interesting yep but i mean again seeing that same thing and so is
1: there a difference here with some oxygen uptake is that actually the cause of what the uh, the fermentation stallout is with these well i mean we're seeing more and more evidence that says that yeah that's exactly what it is it's it comes down to an oxygen exchange so kind of interesting more ammunition in the argument that open fermentation is your friend.
0: Yeah, uh, certainly it's nothing you should try and avoid if, uh, if you're interested in trying it. There are a lot of people who go, Oh my God, open fermentation, my beer will be infected. Not if you do it right, folks.
1: Well, and as we said in the, the stout episode of the brew files last week, open fermentation is not a, uh, it is not a call for you to just walk away from your fermenter and ignore it. <laughs> no. You don't just put the wort in there, leave it on the floor, and go away. Yeah. The big thing I've I've seen with open fermentation that other people screw up, I've screwed it up multiple times like this, is when you get lazy and you're not watching for when fermentation is done. Because as your fermentation starts to wrap up, that's when you want to put an airlock on there. You want to get it undercover because with no active CO2 evolution and no croissant up there, you're losing your protection. So... Yes, open fermentation is fine and dandy, but no, you don't get to just walk away and ignore the beer for the rest of your life. Yep. So pay attention. Open fermentation is your friend, particularly with Saison strains. I'm also going to guess that if we did similar tests with some of these uh, English strains as well, that we would see some very similar uh, uh, results because I think uh, there are a number of English strains out there that like open fermentation as well.
0: Yeah, and for them, I don't know if it's as much about uh, attenuation as it is about flavor, but yeah, uh, open fermentation is a real common uh, English technique.
2: Yep. All right,
1: so I think that's probably enough science for now. Uh, There's more science in the tank, hopefully, but we'll, (laughs) we'll get there.
0: Right. And now we're going to head over to the lounge and kick back and listen to an interview with Matt Bowling from the AHA. He's going to be talking about the Radagast Award, or as Drew likes to call it, the awesome club of awesomeness. So stick around. We're going to be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome over here to the lounge. Uh, kick back, relax, get ready to listen to an interview. We recently spoke with Matt Bowling, the event planner for the American Homebrewers Association, about, uh, the Radagast Award for the Awesome Club of Awesomeness, and about uh, HomebrewCon coming up in Nashville in general. Today, we're going to have a chat with Matt Bowling from the AHA, and we're going to talk about the Radagast Award, which Drew is often called the Awesome Club of Awesomeness Award, which is harder to say than it sounds like. So, hey, Matt, how you doing today, man? Hey, I'm
2: doing really well. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Uh, it, it's our pleasure. So, uh, since Drew knows a whole lot more about this than I do, I'm going to just kind of sit back and let him take it.
1: There oh well, uh, one I still think it should be called the Awesome Club of Awesomeness Award,
2: but I got it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah it's uh I mean the Radagast Award is something that uh we we had once upon a time that was I believe referred to as the Awesome Club Club of Awesomeness, but I guess it does just just doesn 't really roll off the tongue all that well, so uh we renamed it to the Radagast Award and uh started handing it out in two thousand and fourteen uh so we've had had six clubs win the award and uh, we're looking forward to awarding the winner of this year uh, at HomebrewCon during the National Homebrew Competition Award Ceremony in June. Well,
1: and I think it's, we should back up and give a little bit of history on it. So, because uh, I was around when this thing got created, it was kind of my my big push in the HA. It was the one thing I said that I was going to do while I was on the governing committee, and I got it done. So, the awesome Cold Vosnus Award, or the Radigas Award, the reason it's called that is because, you know, Every year when we come together for HomebrewCon, HomebrewCon is a celebration of homebrewing, right? I always tell people it's the three days per year when you're allowed to go utterly geek out about homebrewing and not have people's eyes glaze over.
2: Sure. HomebrewCon is going to be taking place in Nashville, Tennessee, June 18th through the 20th. Uh, Tickets are going to be going on sale on March 10th. Um, If anybody has never been to HomebrewCon before, this is the year to go. I mean, it's in Nashville. This is going to be the first time that we're bringing the conference, uh, to, uh, tennessee ever in the 42 year history of it um we've got an incredible line of speakers coming out uh that we're going to be announcing uh next week i'm not sure when this is going to be published but uh later in february we'll put it that way um and it's it's just three days of beer nirvana if anybody's ever been there before we'll tell you You just have to go and experience it for yourself. So we'd love to see everybody in Nashville when we hand out the Radagast award. All
1: right. Now, Radagast is not the only thing that's handed out at the AHA HomebrewCon, And that was one of the things that we talked about when this award was first being uh, produced. I mean, can you give a rundown of all the other awards that are handed out there?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the the at HomebrewCon, it's three days of educational seminars and uh, uh, the Homebrewing Expo to rule them all, kinda. Uh, you know, there's got uh, you've got all sorts of the latest and greatest in homebrewing gear on display for people to shop and and uh, you know talk talk shop with some of the the, the greatest minds in, in the beer world and the homebrewing hobby. Um, and at the, the one of the very last events on Saturday at the end of the conference is the National Homebrew Competition Awards. So everybody who entered the competition this year will have to go through one of the first round judging sites. Uh, and if they score highly enough in one of those judging sites, then their beer will actually be able to uh, move on into the final round of the competition, which will be judged at HomebrewCon in Nashville. Uh, and that last day of the conference, we have the award ceremony where, uh, it's kind of, kind of like, uh, the, the homebrewing Olympics, if you will, where all these homebrewers are coming up and getting their, their, uh, bronze and silver and, and gold medals in every single category. And just the excitement in the room is, is really hard to describe unless you've experienced it for yourself because everybody either in, everybody in the room either is in the competition, or maybe they know somebody in the competition, or maybe they just have a club member who is still in that final round. And so it's just, it's just a lot of fun. And so we award those medals for each category. Uh, and we also award Homebrewer of the Year. Uh, we award the Ninkazi Award, which goes to the homebrewer who, who scored the most medals, uh, that year, uh, medaled most. They basically most decorated homebrewer that year. There's Meat Maker of the Year, Cider Maker of the Year, Club of the Year, which goes to, uh, the club that gets, brings home the most medals, uh, but also the Radagast Club of the Year is, is a little bit different from the Club, quote unquote Club of the Year. Uh, the Radagast Award is handed out to basically, like we said, the, the club that is the most awesome that year. Um the Radagast Award is, is named for the Slavic God of Hospitality and the creator of the of beer, Radagast. And it's not won through competition, but it's it's a, an award that we give out to a club who has really done great things for their community that year. So we award this to the club that shows that they are really making a difference in their community through several different criteria. Um the The main pillars being diversity, philanthropy, home brewing promotion, brewing and teaching the present the quality of the presentation that they presented to us when they applied uh the club's size and age relativity we have a a, a factor in there so that clubs that are just humongous and have a lot of resources don't get uh, you know there are a lot of smaller clubs out there who are maybe newer or aren't as big who who are doing just as awesome stuff as the uh some of those larger more established clubs and just we have some some bonus points for overall awesomeness of the club um so whenever these clubs submit their applications there's actually a team of of governing committee members and and drew was a long-time member of the governing committee so he's very familiar with how this works but Mm -hmm. they go through and and judge that application based on those criteria and decide you know what club is really doing some of not not only are they they making great beer and and uh and and you know promoting the hobby but they're really out there making a difference in their community, and it's it's just one of those things that we hand out every year. That you know, it, it might not get the the shine and the glamour of Club of the Year or of the of the Ninkasi Award, but it's one of our favorite awards to give out because the people that the clubs that win it just get so excited, um, and it's just it's it's something that we're really proud to hand out every single year.
1: Well, I think that's a very important point. It's not based on the competition, right? And that was one of the the, the reasons for bringing that award into existence is, you know, the competition is sort of the big highlight. And yeah, if you can marshal all your homebrewers to make awesome beer and get it into the competition and win medals, then yeah, you absolutely deserve an award. But I come from a club, for instance, that doesn't really do much competition. And so to me, there's so many other things that happen in a club, so many other reasons to be in a club. That that's part of what we wanted to capture in Radagast was to to give those clubs a chance to have their moment when they can wave the flag and say we're really awesome.
2: Yeah, the judging criteria um, you know the, is based on uh, diversity, so basically how well the club reaches out to um, my, minorities in the, the hobby, and also uh, you know we we've seen that through our surveys that homebrewing is you know. Large majority of homebrewers are male, and so we are doing our best through our AHA governing committee's um, diversity and and inclusion subcommittee is doing a lot to try to bring in some more new faces into the hobby. So uh, there are a lot of clubs that do some really great stuff to bring in um, new you know, new subsets of of the public into homebrewing, like um, the Oregon Brew Crew won the award in 2018. They do something really cool every year. They do uh, a big homebrewing competition called She Brew, and it's only open to female homebrewers. Um, and it's really grown in popularity over the years and has really actually helped promote a lot of, uh, really helped recruit a lot of new women homebrewers. So that was one of those aspects that they highlighted in their application that the judges thought was really fantastic. Um, another piece of the, the, the judging criteria is philanthropy. Uh, you know, how does the club improve itself? Uh, uh, how does the club improve its community um, and what they accomplish in the name of charity? Um, in 2017, the Heart of the Valley Homebrewers in Corvallis, Oregon, won the Radagast Award. Something that they do every year is they, they adopt a highway and actually go through and uh, they've picked up some sort of Crazy amount of trash through this program the last couple of years um, it was in their 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 application, but they've picked up like thirty two hundred pounds of trash in the last couple of years and uh, that was something that was really fantastic to see. Um, the promotion of the hobby was, is another one of those pillars of the award. Um, last year's winner, the Quality Ale Fermentation Fraternity, Quaff in San Diego, something that they highlighted in their uh, application was they actually set up a class in, uh, Tijuana, a BJCP class to teach some of the homebrewers across the border about BJCP styles. And I believe that they recently actually held a, uh, BJCP exam. So they were driving from San Diego down to Tijuana to work with the, the Tijuana homebrewing club down there to, to really get their homebrewers, um, their, their members educated. Um, so brewing and teaching is another one of those, um, one of those pillars, uh, and also just kind of overall awesomeness again is one of those things that we really look at it doesn 't have to be a specific competition it doesn 't have to be a specific amount of money donated you know there 's one thing that a, a club did a couple of years ago, the Hogtown Brewers out of Gainesville, Florida. Um, they do what 's called the the hogtown regatta every year. Uh, and they actually, it's it's kind of similar to the the highway cleanup that Heart of the Valley does, but instead of cleaning up a highway, they'll clean up a riverway. So the, all of the club members will get into kayaks and, and canoes and stuff throughout the day, and they will clean up this uh, adopted river uh, in their area. And then at the end of the day, they all go and have like a home brewing party and there's a beer barge that floats with them. Um, So, you know, just, there's so many things that clubs do in their communities that aren't really highlighted, you know, by, by any other entity besides themselves. And we just kind of wanted to create this award to, find a way to recognize all that great stuff that homebrew clubs are doing. And the winner every year actually does get a cash prize. So the winner will get $500 to the club, and they also get $500 uh, to donate to a charity of their choice.
1: Yeah, I think when the Falcons won, we we took that $500 and had fun with it, and then we gave the other 500 to one of our favorite charities in the area that and somewhat appropriate for a club named the Falcons, uh, we gave it to the Ojai Raptor Rescue Center. Oh, great! Yeah, so they got go. Yeah, rescue. I remember that Falcon. being a
2: big part of the club's um, the club support uh, when you guys mm-hmm. uh, applied, and I believe you guys do a, a big toy drive every year, correct?
1: Yep, we do a toy drive. Uh, all of our competitions, uh, all of our main competitions, have some charity aspect to them, and we do, yeah, we do uh, women's brew days, we do a lot of outreach into the community, uh, and we also, uh, I think, what was it last year? Last year we did a food drive, we did the toy drive, we donated money to Operation Rubicon, and yeah, so the club does do a lot, and I think the whole point behind the, the charity aspect and this chance to promote things, like the very first people who won the award, uh, the Carolina Brewmeisters, I mean, they have... An outrageous level of donation that they would give to a cancer charity every year, you know, from their from their big Oktoberfest party. And that yeah, was the really Carolina
2: Brewmasters about. were the very first winners of the award in 2014. Uh, they're one of the major. Driving forces behind the annual Charlotte Oktoberfest. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that they're involved in that, uh, that festival anymore, but at the time, uh, they were actually donating, I believe it was up to $75,000 a year was split between Second Harvest Metrolina and the Classroom Central and Project Halo. So they were putting just that for a homebrew club to be dedicating $75,000 to local charities is just mm-hmm. Un- un- unbelievable, so you know one of the we just f- figured that this reward has to be given out to these clubs every year who really show what kind of difference those that home brewing clubs can make, so you know i i I'm a member of a homebrewing club around me, and uh, I, I became a father last year, and so I don't really have as much time to to homebrew as much as I would like to, but like I used to. So going to my local homebrewing club meeting is one of those ways that I'm able to actually continue engaging in the hobby, even without, say, dedicating uh, six hours to a brew day or four hours or whatever. And so you know, it's it's really cool to be able to go to those meetings and see all the things that the club is involved in, and maybe get involved on that level so if anybody's listening and maybe they they want to promote that they want to um nominate their club for the award we definitely are looking for nominations the deadline to do that is march 31st but also if you're listening and you're not a member of a homebrew club you know i i encourage you to go out and check it out because homebrew clubs they're not just about the brewing aspect. Some of them are, of course, but there are a lot of really, th- really cool things that clubs are doing that uh, you can get involved in and find a way to, to make a difference in your community. So that's one of the things that I, I find so cool about the home brewing clubs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've talked before about how much a homebrew club means to me and, and my brewing. So I think everybody should find a homebrew club. I think everybody should uh, join one. And you know, look if you have if you don't have one in your area that Serves your needs. We ha- the HA has guides on how to start one. Um, but now let's get back to we the do. App- Yeah, now let's get back to the application process. I right, mean, it's not like you have to put together an interpretive dance or carve a monument in order to make this happen, right?
2: <laughs> no. Um, no, please don't send us any interpretive dance videos. Um, but if you are interested in nominating your club, you can go to the AHA's website, uh, and under the Community section, there's a tab for clubs. Uh, you can find the Radagast Club of the Year nomination form on there, and it's really easy. We walk you through what we're looking for uh, and give you some some criteria again, diversity, philanthropy, homebrewing promotion, brewing and teaching, uh, overall awesomeness, the quality of the presentation, and there is a factor in there for the club's size and age. So, again, we want to make sure that some of the clubs who are larger and have a ton of resources don't get, uh, don't, don't, you know, the, the smaller clubs are still able to compete in this award, and and that has actually been. Very useful because, as I mentioned, the Heart of the Valley uh, Homebrewing Club won in 2017. I believe that their membership is maybe 30 or 40 members. So mm-hmm. it's not just some of the large, larger homebrew clubs out there that are, are winning this award. There's there's some smaller clubs out there making some really great. Uh, steps in their community so those are the criteria Um, the submission deadline is march 31st so you just need to go to the aha website and uh, submit it and we will be announcing the winner of the award uh, again at national homebrew competition award ceremony at HomebrewCon in nashville june 18th to the 20th
0: and the aha website if i remember correctly is homebrewers association
2: right yep
1: okay And information for HomebrewCon is at
2: homebrewcon.org. Tickets go on sale March 10th. So I just want to reiterate that if you've never been to HomebrewCon this year, Nashville is the year to go. We are so excited about it, and we really want to see a lot of first-timers at this year's event because it's going to be the one not to miss.
0: You know what I'm excited about? Hot, hot chicken. chicken. <laughs> I knew
2: you were going to
0: say that. <laughs> man, I, that's all I can think about when I think about homebrew con. Me too, man. I'm a
2: man who loves hot chicken.
1: Yeah, now, uh, now my only worry is how many hot chicken beers are there going to be at homebrew commies? Oh,
0: my God. Don't let Annie hear that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. I uh, I mean, look, I, I have said this every time I've had to announce the award. I love this award. I think it's one of the most important awards that we can give because it's a chance for homebrewers to shine a positive light on the hobby that isn't just us. You know, I mean, let's face it, a lot of people picture homebrewers as people who just like to drink beer. And while that's true, homebrewers also like to do a lot for their community and they like to do a lot for each other. And this is a perfect time to celebrate.
2: Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself.
0: Cool, man. Well, thanks for joining us and we'll see you in Nashville in we'll June. We'll see you there.
2: Thanks so much, guys.
0: So. If you have a club that has been doing some good things, make sure to get entered for the Radagast Award. And if your club is not going to enter for the Radagast Award, we hope that we'll at least see you in Nashville.
1: Yeah, and really,
0: remember, homebrew clubs are awesome.
1: We need to tell people why they are. So get your information in.
0: Yeah, not only do you get to uh, tell people how cool your club is, you actually might get some cash out of it. So that's always a good thing, too. Yeah, $500 will buy you a lot of beer. So go for it, people. It's easy to do. That's right, man. You can make a heck of a party out of that. We're going to take a break here before we wrap things up. So take a listen to these messages, and we'll be right back. With Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a bag of hops. It's nurturing a healthy planet. Yakima Chief Hops has a deep respect for the land that provides a bountiful harvest each year, and they take pride in being advocates of a sustainable, healthy planet. With every hop purchase, you help to support environmental stewardship efforts such as 134,500 square feet of solar panels, a CO2 recovery system reducing greenhouse gas emissions by more than 50%, and impactful non-profit partnerships. Sustainability is a journey, not a destination. There is still more work to be done. Follow the journey of Yakima Chief Hops in their annual Corporate Social Responsibility Report at yakimachief.com slash CSR. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer beer beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer,
1: beer, beer. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for your questions and our answers. And our first question comes from David Evans, who texted us at 626 765 one ale. 626-765-1AL. 626-765-1AL. You can text us a message whenever you feel like. We'll try and get to it. Now, David, actually, (laughs) this was appropriately timed. David texts us to say, hey, guys, I have a question about party guile. If the big beer is going to be a dark beer, like an imperial stout, can you think of any drawbacks to only using the paler base malts in the mash and then steeping the darker specialty grains like I would in an extract brew before the boil? That way I would be able to use the second rinds for a paler beer, like a (laughs) pilsner. Timing. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Really, man. Well, David, you know, you can certainly do that. Uh, From my point of view, there is a drawback that you lose some of the roasty kind of flavor that I like, especially in an imperial stout. When you steep the grains like that and add the liquid later, you're going to be getting a much mellower quality out of your dark malts. And if that's what you want, then that's a great way to do it. Personally, I like a little bit of bite in my Imperial Stout, so I would like to add the dark grains to the mash and then maybe just f- figure out another style of beer for the party guile part.
1: Of course, you could always reverse it, and instead of making an Imperial Stout into a Pilsner, you can make an Imperial Pilsner into a Stout.
0: Yeah, you could if an Imperial Pilsner was what you wanted. I was. I guess I was trying to stay within what he'd asked, but I wasn't really. So, yeah. So, at any rate, uh, the basic answer is yes, it's possible. You'll get a different quality to the beer than you would if you added the dark greens to the mash. That can be either a good or a bad thing, depending on what you're looking for. So, take that into consideration and do what you think is going to work out best for you. There you go. Okay. The next one comes in via email from Aaron Brayton. And Aaron says, I was looking for a big barley wine recipe and stumbled across Drew's brownie wine recipe on the AHA website. The beer sounds delicious, and I'm going to attempt to brew it. I just had a few questions I was hoping you could answer. I'm wondering about the 155 mash temperature. Will the honey and sugar added to the boil, I assume, knock the final gravity down and keep the mouthfeel of the higher mash temp? Also, how long boil for this one? Lastly, is the centennial necessary for the early bittering hop edition, or would Magnum work as well at both 90 and 60 minutes? My IBUs and SRM are coming in a bit lower than yours as well. Thank you for your time. Cheers, Aaron Brayton.
1: Yeah, so Aaron actually wrote in. This was a Maltose Falcons recipe, so it's, it's not exclusively mine. Um, but the brownie one was what we had done for the 40th anniversary. We did this with Firestone Walker. At their brewery in uh, Paso, a fantastic place and they are a wonderful hosts. And the brownie wine, the whole idea was we wanted to make something that was big and bold, but we didn't want to make an imperial stout and we didn't want to make a barley wine. And you know me and brown ales. So we said, why don't we make an imperial brown ale and then age it in rum barrels, which is what we did. And it is a big, crazy, complicated recipe. It's nuts. It's actually more complicated than I would like, but it turned out to make a really wonderful over-the-top, you know, bananas beer. And so for the answers that Aaron was asking, the boil was 90 minutes to 100 minutes, I think. Um, Remember, it was also on the Firestone Walker system, which is probably the reason why some of your uh, IBU and SRM numbers are coming in a little bit differently because they have different utilization factors. Um, You can add the, the honey and the sugar in the boil, and that will definitely help knock down the final gravity. But remember, for a beer this big, the OG is going to be really high. The final gravity is also going to be pretty high. So don't fret getting it obsessively dry. And then, as always, yes, you can totally sub Magnum or Warrior in for the Centennial in the early Boil Editions. I don't think you'll be able to tell the difference, uh, particularly with a beard that's got all of this going on in it. So, by all means, there you go.
0: Yeah, uh, and I want to just make a comment here about uh, the final gravity. Keep in mind, when you're making a... Big beer, you don't want to get the final gravity down to where it would be, say, if you were making a pale ale or something like that. Um, It starts high, and a big beer should, at least a barley wine, should finish high also.
1: Yeah, and just to give people an idea of how big this beer was, it was big enough that even on Firestone Walker's uh, big system, we had to use malt extract in order to get it up high enough. Whoa. Yeah, well, the recipe, just to give you an idea of why I say this one's crazy, it's a combination of uh, pale malt, brown malt, 75 Lovibond crystal malt, 30 Lovibond crystal malt, br- uh, chocolate malt, wheat malt,
0: liquid extract, brown sugar, and buckwheat honey. Wow! Wow! Buckwheat honey too, man. That's got like a, an intense flavor to it. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> th- this was a
1: this was a very very intense beer. It started at a r- original gravity of about 11.21, and uh yeah it was a it was a big beer that uh they kept breaking out and they kept they kept telling us Oh we're running out of it we don't we don't have any more of it, and then every year there's like a little bit more that seems to leak out. I don't know if they just have a magic pocket corner of their warehouse. it also if I remember correctly ended up in one of the anniversary beers too as wow. part of the blend
0: and so again, going back to final gravity for an eleven twenty one beer I'm assuming that's gonna finish in the ten twenty five thirty area, yeah exactly yeah yeah so don't don 't try and get an eleven twenty one beer down to ten ten to finish
1: yeah exactly so you'll you'll be you 'll be hating life if you if you try and focus too much on that but yeah by all means, go for it
0: okay. Our final question comes in from Jerry Tinney via email, and fortunately drew's going to be reading it <coughs> <laughs> yeah get a big drink of water first. I recently entered an
1: American stout into a competition and was advised that medicinal phenol aroma and taste was present and increased as the beer warmed. I did not detect the flavor in that beer originally, but I am admittedly not very well trained in off-flavor detection. Tasting it after the competition, I can definitely detect it. Yeah, well, be careful. Sometimes when people plant an idea in your head, suddenly it's there, but yeah. it might have been. Anyway, the water I brewed with was treated with half a Campton tablet before the mash, seven gallons of filtered tap water. I mash in a 10-gallon round orange drink cooler. I brew no sparge while using a fabric brew-in-a-bag style filter in the mash done. The beer was mashed at 154 degrees for 60 minutes. Below are my brewing notes. 10.46 pre-boil gravity, 5.7 pH at 60 degrees pre-boil. Collected 6.5 gallons into the kettle. Estimated OG was too low, 10.50. So I added 9 ounces of wheat DME to the boil. Extended boil, 5 minutes. Total boil time, 65 minutes. Expected OG... 1055 actual og 1058 measured with a refractometer ph 5.2 post boil cool beer with a copper immersion chiller whirlpool hops added 130 degrees at 1 p.m i missed my whirlpool temperature since i was planning on 170 degrees i fermented in a 5 gallon glass carboy thoroughly cleaned with pbw and sanitized with StarSan, and i use a thermal well and an ink to control fermentation temperatures inside my dorm fridge i use a seed starting mat wrapped around the fermenter for heat I pitched yeast at 9pm, 1218 into a 62 degrees wort from an active starter from a stir plate using the leftovers and overpitched starter of a previous batch, which was stored in a boiled, sterilized mason jar with boiled and then cooled distilled water in the fridge at 40 degrees for about six weeks prior to making the starter. 1221, 11pm, changed to 64 degrees. 1224, 9am, changed to 67 degrees. Cold crash the beer for 24 hours at 34 degrees. Final gravity, 1013 on one 18. I'd great keg the beer and force carbonate it at 10 psi and 40 degrees. The recipe follows. 9 pounds of two-row, 1 pound German dark Munich, 1 pound German light meat. 11.75 ounces of flaked oats, 1 pound of UK roasted barley, 0.75 pounds of UK chocolate malt. 9 ounces of wheat DMA, 1.75 ounces of Centennial for 60. 1 ounce of Centennial in Whirlpool. Omega Labs 005 Irish Ale. I was curious where you guys thought I might have picked up the off-flavor. The only real possibilities I've come up with are, one, my keg tap and hose. I use clear BevLex PVC line and cover taps and just clean with PBW hot water flush followed by star sand the day before the competition. I'll admit, I don't remember the last time I replaced the beer line, and it's overdue. Or two, when I cold crash some of the star sand in my blow-off, I fill a gallon distilled water jug halfway with star sand and put a quarter-inch diameter plastic hose from the rubber bung into the star sand. The beer blow-off material was sucked back into the carboy. Thanks in advance for the help, and keep up the awesome podcast. (sighs) P.S. I always hear you guys answering questions from listeners where not enough details were provided, so I may have gone overboard. Cheers, Jerry.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know about overboard, man, but uh, there's pretty much every detail we could want in there. So, uh, I have a, a couple guesses here, and they both relate to yeast. There is a very slight chance that if you got uh, some actual yeast blow off sucked back in, that might have contributed to the problem uh if all you sucked in was star sand water i don't think so but basically to me when i hear something like that with phenols when the water was taken care of and everything and and let's face it there are a lot of different kinds of phenols water creates chlorophenols uh there's you know clove and smoke and all those things are phenols also so you know that would be helpful to know but I would have to guess, and this is strictly a guess, that it is a yeast health issue due to you storing the yeast for six weeks underwater. Storing yeast underwater is really not the healthiest thing for the yeast. Uh, I learned long ago from Bill Pierce. You remember Bill? Mm? Uh Yeah, I figured you would. Bill Pierce spent some time at the Siebel Institute learning to become a commercial brewer, and one of the first things that he talked about learning there was that it's much healthier for the yeast to store it under beer than under distilled water, because there are some nutrients in there. Remember, when you're storing the yeast, it is still fermenting away slowly. So I have always just stored my yeast underneath some of the beer from the fermenter, and generally avoided that problem, although I have made the mistake of storing yeast too long and trying to reuse it and gotten phenols out of it. Uh, So, you know, based on what you've told us, Jerry, that's my guess, is six weeks underwater in your fridge kind of like made that yeast go, oh, I'm freaking out, and it started expressing some phenols. So all I can tell you is next time you overbuild your starter and you want to store some of it, go get some cheap beer, the cheapest stuff you can find around uh, at your local discount mart, and pour some beer over the yeast to store it instead of water and see if maybe that helps you alleviate that issue.
1: Yeah, and for me, if it's not a water issue and you're getting a phenol, it's fermentation, yeast, or uh, sanitation-related I'm guessing not a sanitation issue here, particularly since I mean this seems to be a rather subtle thing, given that it doesn't seem to happen until it really starts to warm up, um, at least in terms of noticing. So yeah, I'm I'm inclined to agree with you. I'm I'm going to suspect uh, yeast health as well.
0: Yeah, right. And like I said, exactly where that issue came from is really hard to pin down. But my first Thought was that it was uh, from six weeks underwater with that yeast, so that's that's the guess, man. Uh, hopefully that will work for you from here on. There we go. And now it's time for a quick tip. This quick tip came to me when I was brewing yesterday, um, and I'll, let me tell you the genesis here. Uh, I uh, have a couple conical fermenters, and I put them up on tables that are like maybe. Two and a half feet high, three feet high, maybe something like that, so that I can gravity transfer from them. Um, I have been stepping up onto a little step stool, holding onto a flashlight with one hand to look inside while I did stuff with the other hand. And being the clumsy oaf that I am, I've just about fallen off of that step stool a couple times. I had this sudden revelation uh, that why the heck didn't I just hang a light over the fermenters? Now, that that may be obvious to some of you, but I'm not uh, as fast and bright as some of you. So I went out and got myself a nice $25 LED shop light, hung it over the fermenters, and it was like angels started singing when I went, went up on that step stool to look in there. It was uh, it, re- it was really a, a great thing, and it got me thinking about the fact that too often... When we're solving problems in homebrewing, we're solving the symptom and not the problem itself, right? I'd been getting up there with a flashlight because it was dark and I could look in. And that was was solving the fact that I couldn't see into the fermenter, but it wasn't really solving the problem of why I couldn't see into the fermenter. Uh, Another thing that I've heard a lot of people talking about recently is the use of hulls in their mash to prevent stuck runoffs. Now, I've never had a stuck runoff, and I really believe that the cause of a stuck runoff is more related to your louder system and your mash tun than it is to, you know, the grains you're using or anything else. So... You know, my solution to that would be to change my louder system. Now, again, that's my solution. Not everybody wants to do that. Some people are happy with their false bottoms. But, again, it comes back to solving the problem and not the symptoms of the problem. So the next time you have an issue you're trying to figure out, think about what really causes that issue and get to the root of things and don't just do a stopgap thing to, to solve the problem temporarily.
1: Yeah, feel free to use the stopgap to get to the other side of the problem. Just right, solve it before the next time.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, like I said, I was up there, I solved it with a flashlight, and then suddenly I realized that was not the ultimate solution. So take a tip from my stupidity and try and do better. That
1: sounds good to me. And, of course, now we can't help but leave you with something other than beer because there is always something more to life than beer. And this is a well-known series to a number of you, but uh, I had not started to watch it until just recently. And now I'm kind of kicking myself for not having watched it in the past. And that is Shit's Creek, available on Netflix. It is a half-hour uh, comedy uh, of about a rich family that loses all their money and all their assets, except for the little town of Shit's Creek that they bought as a joke for a birthday present for their son. And it was created by Eugene Levy and his son Dan Levy, who are both in the show. And also stars Catherine O'Hara, which is pretty much two of of my favorite performers right there. And then you throw Chris Elliott into the mix. But it is very much a combination of Arrested Development and a bunch of other things. And uh, I'm really kind of kicking myself that I didn't get a chance to watch the show before this. So by all means, if you're in the mood for something slightly absurd, something kind of funny... And something that was inspired by the thought of what would happen to the Kardashians if they lost all their money. Watch Schitt's Creek.
0: Uh I'll let you watch it and tell me about it. There you go. It's funny. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. Uh you know, I'm just not into the the broad humor thing, like, well, you know, I don't think I am. Then I watch Britcoms, so who knows.
1: I, I was gonna say, if you like British comedy, you'll love Schitt's Creek.
0: Really? Okay, well maybe I'll have to give it a try then. Please do.
1: All right. Let's get out of here.
0: We're getting out of here, so thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to catch us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're all over the place. I hang out on a lot of different beer forums, most notably the AHA discussion forum. And you can find Drew on the homebrewing subreddit or the Slack homebrew channel. If you want to ask us questions or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, and we get a lot of that, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or a text at 626 765 al That's 626 Yeah, leave your name, please. 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.